Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon or evening, depending on your time zone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's episode is a little bit unique. Uh, we are talking today about the question of ethics in archaeology. Um, and it's a topic that has come to the fore in the past couple of decades, actually, because of the growth of commercial archaeology and the progressive, re not removal, but the progressive imprint of contract or archaeology and heritage management in the archaeological community. And we are talking specifically about issues that involve archaeology in situations of conflict, um, the traditional um, mechanisms by which archaeology was made known to the Western world, and, and that would have involved, of course, the transporting of antiquities and artifacts and precious records from uh, parts of uh, the developing world to uh, the West and the use and, in some cases, the exploitation of such artifacts and treasures in the commercial market. I have two guests that will be discussing this topic with me. Uh, my first guest is uh, Dr. Peter Stone, who is the head of the School of Arts and Cultures and Professor of Heritage Studies in the International Center for Culture and Heritage at Newcastle University in the UK. In 2003, uh, Dr. Stone worked as advisor to the Ministry of Defense regarding the identification and protection of the archaeological and cultural heritage of Iraq. He's remained active in working with the military to refine attitudes and to develop processes for the better protection of cultural property in times of conflict. Uh, Peter has worked extensively overseas and has advised UNESCO on the development of World Heritage Education Programs, and he helped develop the draft for the World Heritage in the Young Hands Kit. He's published widely on heritage management, interpretation, and education, including a volume called The Destruction of Cultural Heritage in Iraq in 2008, and he has edited Cultural Heritage, Ethics, and Military. Um, 
Dr. Stone has also won the prestigious Peter Ucko Memorial Award for significant contributions to archaeology as envisaged by the World Archaeological Congress, and we'll be talking about that organization a little bit later as part of our uh, discussion. And in 2011, uh, Dr. Stone became an officer of the British uh, Empire, awarded in the Queen's Birthday Honors List for Services to Heritage Education. Uh, Dr. Stone, welcome to the program. Good evening. Thank you. My second guest is uh, Mr. Drew McGill, who is a Ph.D. candidate in Indiana University, Department of Anthropology, and associate faculty at the uh, Indiana University at South Bend. His research focuses on late prehistoric peoples of the American Midwest and social cultural context in archaeology, with a special focus on cultural property law and archaeological ethics. He is a form, er, former six-year me uh, member of the Society for American Archaeology and the Committee of Ethics, where he acted as an organizer of the SAA Ethics Bowl. He is co-author of the book Ethics in Action, Case Studies in Archaeological Dilemmas. He is currently a member of the World Archaeological Congress Committee on Ethics and was recently elected treasurer of the World Archaeological Congress. Thank you for participating, Drew. Thank you. Uh, Peter, let me start with you because you have a long history of having worked on ethical issues in archaeology. And I guess my initial question to you, and it's a broad one, is how do you see the question of ethics evolving in the general archaeological dialogue over the course of time? And how has it been affected by this changing focus in archaeology as, as we pass from a, a primary, primarily academic focus to one that involves cultural resource and heritage management? Um, well, Joe, as you said in your introduction, this has sort of come um, forward in the last 20 or 30 years, perhaps. And I think probably before that period, archaeology was seen very much as an academic and museum-based discipline that was um, divorced from the real world, let's say. It was a specialist thing that, that specialist people did in their ivory towers. Um, from the 1980s onwards, we began to understand that actually archaeology was far more important than that and that it had a real voice and a real um, flavor in modern society. I tell my students always that we study the past to understand the present to create the future. And I don't think you can create the future without an ethical basis from which to do so. And so uh, if we were talking about uh, sort of a history of ethics in archaeology, was there any consciousness, was there awareness of the fact, for example, that uh, let's take a, a very primitive example and a very fundamental example, excuse the, uh, the, the expression, uh, artifacts, classical artifacts from Egypt, uh, say, that found their way into, say, the British Museum or the Metropolitan Museum of, of Art in New York. Um, how, how did we deal with that before the uh, consciousness, shall we say, of the past 30 years? Well, I think that, that consciousness goes back of illicit antiquities a little bit further, perhaps to the um, end of the 50s, early 60s, where people were beginning to question the, what had become traditional um, situation, where Western museums and Western universities would go on expedition to the... Um, what we would call source countries, so Egypt, throughout the Middle East, Africa, other parts of the, um, for want of a better term, developing world. And we would 
go out, excavate, and either take back everything that was found or through a system that was called partage, do a deal with the local authorities and take some of the material back. And that, that system had been going since Napoleon when he went through um, on his campaigns in Egypt and uh, the Louvre in Paris was stocked um, with the Egyptian material and from other uh, military campaigns from Napoleon, um, very much on the booty that he collected from uh, from his exploits. And that was in many ways building on what the Romans had done and others before them, looting um, the vanquished. So that that's a system that was there in part. In the 1960s, UNESCO and some museums folk began to question whether this was the right way of creating uh, museum collections. And in 1970, UNESCO produced a convention um, about the illicit trade in antiquities and trying to stop that illicit trade and trying to stop museums, especially in the West, um, taking material, uh, effectively, uh, many would say, stealing material from that developing world. And so that was going on, and it was going on with relative impunity, basically from what you say, because there were deals that were cut between uh, museums or large uh, um, benefactors and, and local governments that, uh, for whatever reasons, made these deals. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, some of those times those deals were done uh, because they were political ex politically expedient. So, for example, one of the best, you know, best known examples in the world are, and you immediately say which side of the fence you're on because you either call them the Elgin marbles or the Parthenon marbles. And depending on which way you say, you think if you, they're the Elgin marbles, that they were taken legitimately with the blessing of the then legitimate government that happened to be at that stage occupying Greece, the um, Ottoman Empire, um, or if you say the Parthenon marbles, stolen from the Greeks by the British and remaining still in the British Museum. Now there, that was, a, you know, at some form, a legitimate political uh, negotiation and agreement. Um, there are others that were much more formally done in an archaeological sense. So if you go to um, Iraq uh, between the uh, First and Second World War, the system of partage there was the uh, Iraqi archaeologists would work alongside uh, British or American archaeologists and would um, take a part of the material that was um, excavated on any particular um, archaeological season. So this pot will go back to the British Museum or wherever. This pot will stay in Iraq. This pot will go back. This pot will stay. And that was an, an agreed system of, of splitting the fines, let's say. So there are different ways uh, that people were dealing with the issue at that time. What we've come to uh, accept now is that actually material really probably belongs as close to where it is excavated as possible. So that's become basically sort of a dividing line. Um, yeah, the 1970 convention is the dividing line. And if that's the case, then how rigorously has this been followed? And what are the problems that have emerged over the past uh, 40 years in that regard? Well, in terms of illicit antiquities, it's been um, followed to a greater or lesser extent, depending on, uh, you know, again, which side you look at. There are um, numerous examples where archaeologists from 
as I say, for want of a better term, the developing world, have been asking for material that was taken under a colonial um, or uh, other dominant um, relationship um, period back. And so the, the Greeks have been asking for the Parthenon marbles back. The British have been refusing to return the Elgin marbles, the same, same bits of stone. Um, the uh, many uh, colleagues in Africa have been asking for uh, material back that was, uh, in their eyes, looted by British colonial forces in the 19th century. Uh, and those, in, in particular, a group of um, bronze statues called the Benin Bronzes, um, those still remain in Britain. In other instances, um, there have been quite successful attempts to get material back. So there were there um, court cases in Italy um, demanding and re retrieving material from the United States, for example. Um, so it, it's a very uh, varied view. But I think what we can now say quite categorically is that no major museum would accept anything uh, now without a good provenance. And on that note, we're going to take our first break here. We will get back with our discussions with uh, Dr. Peter Stone and with uh, Mr. Drew McGill of Indiana University right after this break. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace to speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We are back in our discussion with Dr. Peter Stone and Mr. Drew McGill on uh, ethics and archaeology. And Peter Stone is a noted expert on the entire question of ethics, its evolution in archaeological thought, theory, and practice. And uh, I guess a new perspective, one that we can, we can just uh, 
basically introduce at this point is students going into archaeology who are already familiar with some of the issues surrounding ethics, one of the few universities that actually utilizes the question of ethics in its formal archaeology program is Indiana University. And Drew, I'd just like to get your perspective as someone who's basically uh, coming into the profession on where do you see ethics being as a major part of an archaeological program and what are they teaching you from the outset about your responsibilities as an archaeologist with respect to ethical issues? Yes, good question. Um, and I think as Dr. Stone was was mentioning, you know, we have reached this new uh, moment in archaeology with regards to ethics and that I sort of see as a change from more of a object-centered perspective on ethics to a people-centered perspective on ethics in that we are thinking much more about archaeology's impact on living people today. Uh, that in our classroom settings, at least here at Indiana University, one of our, our major uh, foci is this question of modern impact, and it's uh, what we call it at, uh, at Indiana is the social context archaeology, so studying the social context of archaeology, however it may be practiced, whether in a professional or uh, academic setting. Uh, in terms of how this uh, is viewed by you know a, a younger generation or, or in our uh, in our ethics education, uh, I think that it's you know a movement beyond simply learning what the rules and, and regulations of archaeological practice are uh, towards a engagement with uh, broader perspectives of science. So to thinking outside of um, research methods, uh, which are, of course, uh, very important and still understanding how to uh, not only you know draw up a budget, but also develop a proper archaeological hypothesis, to thinking about uh, the varied ethical codes of archaeologists, the um, global contexts of our discipline, uh, you know, aspects of moral philosophy or professional ethics that can inform our practices, and just getting experience thinking about ethical dilemmas that we might face in the future so that we're better prepared when those do come about. Do you have courses specifically oriented towards those issues? Are they uh, illustrated by examples? And how are these basic theoretical and methodological points uh, promoted in the classroom and beyond? Yes, we do have a, a course in archaeological ethics uh, that is available not only to archaeologists, but students of other subfields of anthropology and other disciplines as well, uh, and other courses on you know, archaeology uh, in the media or archaeology in fiction. Uh, so any a number of different courses that engage this topic of uh, archaeology practiced in the present uh, in the archaeological ethics uh, class, we do uh, take advantage of fictional case studies, uh, and this is something that has been uh, done since uh, Katie Vitelli really began this at Indiana University, having students actually author fictional case studies to have them think about stakeholders involved in archaeological practice to then frame out and generate possible solutions to those ethical dilemmas. Uh, and then, of course, to to arrive at some sort of negotiated uh, solution and understand the the 
potential um, impacts of those solutions uh, in the present. In your own work, I mean, uh, I know you're doing some work in uh, in in North America at the Angel Mounds. Have you been able to incorporate some of these principles in your dissertation research or in the approaches that you take to uh, archaeology of early prehistoric societies? Yes, I mean, I, I think that I have, and uh, especially in the field context, um, you know, when you grow up in a academic setting where you understand that every choice uh, and every action that is made as an archaeologist is is an ethical choice, uh, and that we we always have a choice of different types of actions, and that there are different consequences of each, uh, then you sort of you know see your your behavior and that of your colleagues uh, in the field a bit differently, and want to ensure that that um, you know all voices are heard, and that that safety is always a, a top concern for field students, and that. Um, that undergraduate students receive training not only in field methods, but also in uh, public education and engagement. Uh, so in that way, I, th- I feel like I have been able to apply uh, my training in, in ethics to my work at Angel Mounds. Um, Peter, let me get back to you for a minute. We had talked a little bit during the break about the increasing participation of indigenous people in archaeological work generally. They have been employed in uh, professional archaeological excavations, and the voices of indigenous uh, peoples are certainly getting louder and uh, certainly with major justification as as time moves on. How is that affecting our decision-making and the way we look at ethics uh, from the perspective of, uh, say, indigenous peoples and populations, and do we have sort of a barometer of how well that's that's going on worldwide? Yeah. Uh, there's been a massive change in the way that archaeologists interact with indigenous peoples, um, again, since the, I suppose, uh, mid-1970s. Um, until then, effectively, uh, in, in indigenous peoples their ancestors in terms of human remains and their sacred objects that were excavated um, were seen by archaeologists as specimens, objects, elements of antiquity, but were seen by indigenous peoples as um, their ancestors and their very uh, valuable and sacred objects that had no right to be either excavated, um, studied, and certainly not displayed. And you had instances where material that could only be seen by males of a certain age in Australia, for example, being on open display. um, And for a male of a certain age to see that, they would have had to have gone through a whole number of initiations and ceremonies. Suddenly it's available for people of all ages, of all gender. And this was just appalling treatment Um, of those objects, but more importantly, as as Drew was saying, of the people behind the objects. And it was in the late 1970s, early 1980s, that the the whole element of, the whole ethos of archaeology began to change and take cognizance of the fact that these people were actually still here and that they still had a voice and they still, um, you know, the most basic and, and silly level almost, that they had feelings. 
um, which had just been ignored by people in the past. And in, in many ways, that's the essence of I mean, any ethics, but in particular, perhaps archaeological ethics, that you you shouldn't be stepping over a line where you are offending or hurting or putting in some way a global or world view of a person or a group in some difficulty. And so the the whole issue of, uh, of dealing with ind indigenous remains in the 1980s, there were over half a million uh, human skeletal remains of Native Americans, both in the United States and in Europe. Um, and archaeologists began to accept the fact that actually this might not be the right thing, that they might not be the only people to have an opinion on this. And as a result, the uh, in the United States, um, something called NAGPRA was uh, enacted, the Native American Grave and Repatriation Act, and similar legislation has been passed around the world, um, which effectively gives um, the control of human remains and sacred objects back to indigenous groups. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't be studied, but it does mean that archaeologists who want to study them have to work with those indigenous groups to study that material in a um, scientific but uh, careful and legitimate way, which is accepted by the Native American groups or whichever indigenous group um, we're talking about. Yeah, and I, I think, Peter, that you put your finger on an issue that is now becoming even more prominent, and that is where does one draw the line in terms of doing what was traditionally considered a scientific approach in archaeology to one that is much more considerate, uh, considerate of, of culture? And specifically, you're sort of getting a conflict between uh, religious uh, perspectives and scientific perspectives. Let's assume for a minute that there's a duality here, science from the West, religion from indigenous culture. How, how, how are we going to resolve questions like that? And where do you see that moving? Well, I mean, we've been talking that one through for a long time. And one of the first uh, fruits of that discussion was something that's called the Vermilion Accord, which was produced in 1989. Now, the Vermilion Accord was first drafted by a physical um, anthropologist, uh, a, a man called Professor Michael Day from the UK. And Michael drafted that, which in many ways changed the whole ethos of what he'd been doing for um, many years beforehand. And it, he acknowledged the fact that uh, indigenous peoples had equal, um, if not superior, um, rights over those collections. And that was created and crafted over about a week long period, just over a week in South Dakota in 1989 with indigenous people from all over the world, with physical anthropologists and archaeologists um, from all over the world. And we sat down and we talked to each other and we listened to each other and we respected each other. And the document that came out as the Vermilion Accord was significantly different to Michael's first draft, but it's a it's a really good, very simple. I think it's about a, an eight. Um, I think it's six, in fact, um, clause uh, accord, which just effectively says, let's step back from this confrontation. Let's respect each other and let's work together. 
And on that note, we're going to take another break, and we will be back with uh, Peter Stone and uh, Drew McGill after these words. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We are back again. This is Joe Schildenrein with my special guests on this issue and uh, per uh, increasingly significant question of ethics and archaeology as the profession grows in force and magnitude and influence. Um, archaeologists are placed in situations where the type of work that they do uh, often brings them in touch with ethical questions that involve indigenous peoples and another critical issue which is archaeology during uh, times of areas of conflict. Unfortunately, in this day and age, conflict is becoming part and parcel of the world in which we live in, international conflict. Uh, Peter, I'd like to turn to you uh, about uh, a role that you've played significant part in, and that is uh, the, the performance of archaeology during the uh, Iraq War, in which both American and uh, British uh, 
troops and military were involved. And uh, can you give us a little bit of background on what you, what type of uh, role you played in this kind of uh, involvement uh, in the war, in the, the war theater, and how you saw your position and the ethical potential ethical conflicts in that arena? Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, in late 2002 and early 2003, before the actual invasion um, in March 2003, uh, the cultural heritage world was up in an uh, uproar uh, and there were letters to newspapers, politicians on both sides of the Atlantic saying, does the coalition know what it's doing? It's just about to invade Iraq, one of the centers of archaeological um, heritage of the world. And that all of that um, anger and concern uh, fell effectively on deaf ears until I was, uh, well, one element that, that developed from that was I was asked um, about six weeks before the invasion in February of 2003 to help identify and um, suggest ideas about protection for um, a small number of sites in Iraq. And I tried making it a very small um, list of sites by saying, yes, you need to avoid this list of sites, which included the one word Iraq. The, um, the military didn't actually accept that, but they um, did accept a list of about 30 sites. Um, and in the fighting stages, none of those um, sites or museums were, were damaged or, or threatened. Um, what we all know happened very soon afterwards, of course, is as the um, organization of the country collapsed into chaos over the next effectively 10 years, um, there was a huge amount of, uh, of looting, not only of the museums, which was terrible in itself, but the real catastrophe of Iraq was the looting of the archaeological sites, because we know what was in the museums. We studied most of it. We'd taken photographs of it. Um, you know, people knew what was there. We have no idea what has come out of these illegal excavations underground. And we won't know that for at least probably the next 50 years as some of this material slowly comes onto the market, having been um, in a sort of criminal way laundered into a uh, legitimate uh, antiquity market. So there was a huge problem there, and I've been working with the military ever since to try and get them to acknowledge the problem, to acknowledge that they didn't do very well in 2003, which they do very, very quickly, um, but to get them to do things better in the future. And while I started doing this work, I was heavily criticized, which came as initially as a surprise to me, um, by some archaeological colleagues who said that what I was doing was adding an academic uh, legitimacy to an illegal invasion. And while I can see that as an argument, I don't actually subscribe to it. And my view is that cultural property protection during conflict is just the most extreme thing or uh, part of what we do on a daily basis, which is try to protect cultural property um, from any form of development or damage. And I, I see that as the, the, the way we should um, try and move forward. What I don't say at all before any, anybody raises the issue is that any part of archaeology or any bit of archaeological property should be put above a single human life. Um, human life is the first call on everything, um, but 
the uh, you know the, uh, from my perspective, the next one as an archaeologist would be to try to protect the cultural property in a conflict zone, and it's not just in Iraq. Um, I would relate that to any conflict zone anywhere in the world. Uh, Drew, do you have any thoughts on that as a, as a student who is uh, obviously growing up in this kind of an atmosphere and getting into the field at, uh, at a point in time when these questions are coming to the fore? Well, yes, I mean, a lot of people had very strong feelings uh, within archaeology and otherwise uh, concerning all of the recent conflicts. And I'm happy that we have the experiences of people like Peter and those who opposed his, uh, his actions written down uh, in, in journal articles and other places so that we can uh, take them into consideration for ourselves uh, because we know that, that some of our generation will be having to consider those same issues moving forward into the future. I think that, that coming from a perspective where uh, you know, we've been focusing very heavily on the social contexts of archaeological practice, uh, you know, one of, I think one of the more valid critiques of how uh, the situation was handled uh, in Iraq and other places with regards to cultural properties was that today we, we tend to think of, of archaeological resources much more as, as heritage than as property. And heritage is a, a process that involves people and their valuation of uh, resources around them. And that you know, in order to truly understand the, the impact of looting or of uh, the destruction of archaeological sites, we must understand how people view those, uh, those resources and that that's, you know, perhaps not possible in times of conflict, but is necessary for future uh, engagements between, uh, the, between archaeologists, the military and uh, local people. And I would also add that my company was involved in a similar uh, potential conflict in this issue of Iraq. In particular, we were asked to undertake forensic investigations um, at some of the mass grave sites of the Kurds in the southern part of Iraq when they were transported uh, from their native homelands in the northern part of the country to the southern part of the country. And uh, as many of us know, uh, Saddam Hussein uh, was involved in uh, in mass exterminations and he targeted the Kurds. Of course, our effort was, again, as Peter's was, soundly criticized by people who were opposed to the war uh, from on a variety of different grounds, and we know what all those were, but the bottom line was that we were able to go into the war zone, excavate the Kurds, and in a move that the military was not about to acknowledge uh, or approve of, we repatriated the uh, mass graves, the uh, bodies of the Kurds, to their homelands. It was not part of the military's agenda, but it was part of the conditions that we set out in order to do this work. And of course, there are two sides to this story. Were we, as in Peter's case, were we subconsciously supporting the war effort on the other hand, we were uh, we had made the f the formal step of repatriating these remains against the military's original uh, plans to to their uh, to their relatives, and 
these become very, very strong ethical dilemmas that we all have to wrestle with, but I think they're going to be more and more a part of what we do as uh, time goes on. And uh, I'd like to hear, uh, Drew, in particular from you, how you find yourself uh, resolving some of these issues, and, and uh, do you feel that uh, there is a, an independent way of thinking that will allow you, based on precedent, to reach some conclusions on how you're going to approach these situations going forward, because after all, it's going to be your generation that is going to have the task of moving along with this. Yes, it's a difficult question. I think that in all cases in moving forward, uh, when you know, whoever is, is dealing with these issues in the future, uh, you know, my, my hope is that based on learning from these situations of the past, that we'll come to see that every one of these type of situations is context dependent and that uh, as archaeologists, we need to to do our best to understand the local context, but also to to know that we're not alone in these situations, that there are those that we can go to to uh, to discuss and debate and maybe not agree with, but at least learn from uh, regarding the whether it be the treatment of human remains or questions of repatriation or the ownership of cultural property uh, or any part of the practice of archaeology. Peter, I'd like mm. to ask you um, how, how you have fared in the wake of what you did and whether this backlash on the part of the academic community um, affected the way you thought about the project or if you positively influenced any of your colleagues uh, in this very difficult situation. How, what was the response and what was the longer-term ramifications of, of what you did? Um, the, uh, I think the, the longer term can be picked up in a, in a phrase you used um, in terms of the Kurds. It wasn't on the military's agenda. And I think cultural property protection, cultural heritage protection, and I take Drew's point that um, property shouldn't really be seen in isolation. It has to be seen in, in a much broader context of heritage. That just wasn't on the military's agenda in 2003. Interestingly, as just an aside, it had been very firmly on the military's agenda in the Second World War. And um, as Supreme Allied Commander Eisenhower had sent a note round just before the invasion of um, France, through the Normandy invasions, that uh, all commanders were to take care with cultural property. Um, so it was very much on the agenda. There's a special unit created in the Allied forces um, in the Second World War. It wasn't on the agenda in 2003. Because of the work that um, I and other colleagues have been doing over the last 10 years, uh, in December of last year, NATO produced a document um, that recommended that NATO doctrine be um, revised to include policy on cultural property protection. So in that relatively short 10-year period, um, one of the biggest uh, military organizations in the world is trying to, um, to change its, its own spots in a way and see that cultural property protection is important. And it's important for all sorts of different reasons and at all sorts of different levels, which we probably don't have time to go into here. But I think that's a, uh, that is a massive change. And, uh, and that's the result of colleagues um, both uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, again, and in Europe and elsewhere in the world, 
working to try and influence the military to say that this stuff is actually important because it tells us who we are and where we might be going. I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I think one of the lessons that we're learning both uh, in your end of the pond and ours is the easiest thing that you can do is stand on the sidelines and do nothing. And uh, on that on that note, I want to take another break, and then we're going to get into a very dicey issue of the potential uh, ethical issues that the cultural resources and heritage preservation communities are coming into as cultural resource and heritage management uh, assume a much higher profile in archaeology generally. We'll be back after these words. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with our final segment on this engaging discussion on ethics and archaeology. And we've discussed a number of issues that have come to the fore over the past couple of decades uh, as the uh, profession of archaeology shifts from a strongly academic to a more applied focus. And the ethical dilemmas that we are confronting as a broader archaeological community have to do with a lot of interfacing beyond the academic world and into the general public. And we are engaged very often in situations of conflict, in uh, situations that require some kind of resolution, and because heritage and antiquities become a major 
major part of this, then uh, archaeologists, uh, either by design or by circumstance, get drawn into these particular conflicts. Uh, the cultural resources world has now assumed such a high profile in archaeology generally that, and this refers to the applied realm in archaeology, that it is variously estimated that between 80 and 90 percent of the work that is done in the, with, under the umbrella of, of archaeology is done in a commercial concern or, or through commercial venues. And as a result of that, there has been uh, an increasing awareness of ethics. And uh, one of the uh, organizations that has uh, taken a very high profile in this particular area is the World Archaeological Congress, which is a very unique body that is possibly the most prominent international organization of archaeologists that is not purely focused on, uh, on research for research's sake. Um, they have a series of congresses, and uh, Drew, Drew McGill is on the, uh, are you on the executive board, uh, Drew? Yes, the executive committee. The executive committee. And they are uh, presenting a, an intriguing inter-congress uh, called Disentangling Contract Archaeology. And I would like to read a couple of sentences from the uh, description of that um, pro of the plan and the program for that conference, which will be which will be taking place in Brazil in June of 2013, and it reads as follows. Uh, and I'm just taking some excerpts um, that sort of summarize uh, the flow of this uh, contract archaeology, variously known as CRM. Urgent and rescue archaeology can be defined as the way the discipline engages capitalist expansion, sacrificing its critical stance. Its impact is so pervasive that a significant number of archaeologists work for that growing market. By doing so, they have abandoned any possible intervention in contemporary issues in order to dance to the rhythm of money. Um, an additional uh, component of the uh, of the description uh, is that the relationship, and I quote here, the relationship between archaeology and capitalist expansion appears as an innocent instrumentality, as a mere technical service that avoids probing the conditions under which such a relationship unfolds, the principles, if any, that are at stake and possible scenarios in which complicity is replaced by critical engagement. Um, I find that this is a, a relatively charged expression of uh, the Congress's intent. Uh, Drew, can you tell us a little bit about how that proposal was presented to your committee and how the review process went? Yes, well, uh, the World Archaeological Congress specializes in charged discussion. <laughs> and uh, the the Inter-Congresses, as they are called, uh, are held in between our, our major meetings, which occur every four years. And these are, uh, are WAC meetings in that they are normally proposed by our members on a special topic that they would like to consider. And this proposal was made uh, by a few different individuals who uh, outlined a, a similar proposal, not the same as uh, as uh, has been recently uh, discussed on our listservs, uh, that they wish to take a, a critical approach to contract archaeology, 
uh, and were purposefully being one-sided in their discussion uh, because they felt that so much had already been said about the importance of, of uh, heritage management and similar practices uh, within archaeology in previous intercongresses, uh, such as one that recently occurred in China, uh, and that they felt it was very necessary to to very closely and critically examine um, contract work. And so they, they put forward a proposal and the executive discussed it and several uh, members of the executive uh, noted that that there wasn't a good uh, um, balance of, uh, of perspectives in the proposal, but that we respected their uh their interest in examining this topic from only one side, because ultimately what WAC is about is ensuring that all perspectives are allowed to be uh, discussed. And if in this case in Brazil, it was necessary to take a, a more one-sided approach, then we were willing to, uh, to at least put WAC's name behind uh, such an endeavor. Peter, your thoughts on this? It's, uh, uh, as, as Drew says, it's a typical WAC uh, meeting. It um, is, is one that, uh, you know, the, uh, the participants wear their hearts on their sleeves from day one. I <laughs> talked earlier um, about the Vermilion Accord and where, you know, we'd sat down with indigenous peoples from around the world, with archaeologists and physical anthropologists from around the world, and we all went to listen to each other to think about what each other said and to come up with a real concrete solution. I think perhaps um, the Brazil Intercongress is a stage before that where we are still um, venting spleen um, from one side or the other. <laughs> and we need to get that spleen out before we can then get to the stage of sitting down more, more calmly, perhaps, and saying, OK, guys, you know, how can we do this in some form um, of a, a better way, perhaps, but in the real world where we have to exist. And the, the critical thing about um, uh, rescue, salvage, archaeology, CRM, is the fact that it is being done because that archaeology is going to be damaged. It's not a choice, so it's not a research choice to go and excavate it. So there is a real pressing need for that work to be done it's how we do it and how we do it to the best of um, ethical standards and archaeological standards um, that we really need to sort out. And I think around the world, we haven't got that necessarily right, but that we've been going at it. And interestingly, um, I think I'm right in saying that the first archaeological code of ethics um, was actually called the Code of Conduct, which was done by the Institute of Field Archaeologists in the UK in 1985. So we've been hassling this and not getting it right. I think that code has been revised about 10 times since. So each, each year we almost try and modify and polish, a bit, polish it a bit better. And I think that's where this Intercongress is trying to take um, this issue. It may take a little bit longer before we get uh, um, a, a strong uh, agreement out. 
I think that's an excellent point, and uh, I appreciate from you, Drew, the fact that you were actually able to tell us how the procedure worked. I was just a little bit concerned that none of the presenters represented anything other than academic institutions. Um, I think that Peter is right that we have to get a little bit more balance into this argument and that certainly we can look forward to having a healthy interchange between the academic community and the applied community going forward. And uh, thank you for letting us know that, you know, if it's charged, then that's what we have to deal with. We start from a certain point and hopefully we reach uh, a certain middle ground where we will be able to discuss these things in the real world, in real time and with real people in places. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up our discussion. I want to thank my special guests, uh, Drew McGill and, and Peter Stone, for uh, participating in this discussion on ethics. It certainly will not be the first and last word on the topic. We will probably have several more programs with uh, engaging in this particular topic. And I thank everyone for listening and uh, look forward to hearing from you next week. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.